You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Welcome to Red Door. I'm excited to get into the Word this morning. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to Harriet and Joanna. It's the first time they've led, so uh, we're pretty excited about that. Um, but I'm, I'm so keen to hear from God this morning and to hear a bit more about renewal and revival and what that looks like in our lives. Part of the reason that we started this series in renewal is because things are just so crazy at the moment. They seem crazy out in the world. They seem crazy in the church. And we're trying to make sense of it and ask ourselves the question, what would it look like for God to move in our midst? Right? Because as you look out there and you look in the church, just things seem insane. Kanye West is releasing albums with more Jesus focus than many churches have on Sunday. Right? Former WWE contestant Donald Trump is now president of the United States. Right? And even the Anglican Communion, the Anglican Church in Australia, is, is, is considering splitting. Like there's, there's real pressure. And so we want to ask, what, what is going on? How can we make sense of this? What would it look like for God to move again? And as we've done this, we've read a lot. We've read history. We've read people experiencing revival. We've read Old Testament. We've read New Testament. And it's been encouraging. Reading history is incredibly encouraging because you realize that for all the craziness that's happening right now in this moment, things have been way crazier in the past. That even at the moment, we're like, what's going on? Left is right and up is down, and I can't make either head or tail of this. For all of that, history is just way more insane. You can read stories about empires that were hell-bent on trying to wipe out Christianity from the globe, right? Like you look at the Empire of Rome. It's like we're going to wipe out all Christians, not opinion, historical fact. And yet now you can pay 15 euros to walk through the ruins of their empires. I look at that and go, that's encouraging. Right? You have the most aggressive schemes of man designed to wipe out the church, and yet now you walk through their ruins because they failed and the church has prevailed. Like that's, that's encouraging for us to keep going in the midst of all this craziness. But what can happen is we can get lulled into a false sense of security. That as we see that the schemes of man and the schemes of Satan cannot prevail against the church, we get lulled into falling asleep and missing what God is doing in the world. And that's what we started talking about last week. Why are so many Christians sleepy? It's not because there's profound opposition. It's because we've started to believe a lie about God. One that we can progress without his presence. That there is an element of human flourishing that can be achieved without God. And we looked at that. And where we ended the story last week, that is absolutely a lie, but we ended the story last week with saying that if personal, if renewal is going to happen in our world, in our churches, and in our cultures, it has to start here. Personal renewal must proceed corporate renewal. And so we want to pick up this story in the book of Exodus. I encourage you to pick up your Bibles, have them in front of you, be reading along with us, because this story is both insane and also an excellent demonstration of what happens when God starts to renew a sleepy, tired, sinful people and wakens them up to what God is doing in this world. 
So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Exodus 32 and 33. God, speak to us this morning. Wake us up from our slumber. Bring us back to you. Convict us of our sin and lead us to your presence. God, let us not leave this place until, like Moses, we say, if you do not go, we do not want to leave. God, fill us with yourself this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. And the church said in one big, loud voice, Amen. So this story that we read about is one of the most serious periods of spiritual decline in Israel's history. And if you've read Exodus 32, if you've read about the the story of the golden calf and what Israel's doing at the moment, you just know that it's insane. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense. You have Israel who has been set free from the slavery of Egypt. God has parted the Red Seas. He's defeated their enemies. He's fed them with manna from heaven, which is a great trick, God. If you want to feed me with from the clouds, I'm down for that, right? And it just seems like they're in the desert and they're grumbling and complaining all the time, right? God has done all these incredible things in their midst and they're like, oh, fine. I'll worship you, God, I guess. They're just grumbling and complaining over and over again. And so the, 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 what happens before this story, what, this, what happens before this excerpt that Harriet read out for us, is that Moses is headed up to the mountain to meet with God and to receive the law. Right? That's where he is. So he's apart from them. And what happens is that as Moses is on the mountain... As Moses is speaking with God, as he's receiving the law, as he's receiving the Ten Commandments, Israel starts to complain some more. Do we have the first verse on the screen? When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought brought us out from Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. This is insane. He's on a mountain. He's not playing hide and seek. Like he's not gone somewhere. Like, where is he gone? He's on the mountain. They have become impatient. Where has he gone? And so they implore Aaron to make a new God. What Aaron does, Aaron's the high priest of Israel at that moment. He gathers all the gold from their earrings and he melts it down and he makes a golden calf. And Israel says in verse 4, He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. And then Israel said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. There was singing and dancing and just mockery of God. It is it just it literally boggles the mind. It it doesn't make sense what's just happened in this story. Like Jono heads away every so often so from rest and renewal and to decompress, and we love the fact that he can have holidays. Can you just imagine one week that Jono goes away on holidays and he comes back the next week and he asks me, Well, Jimmy, how was church? I said, It was great. We, what we did was we gathered all the plastic chairs and we melted them down and we made a new God to worship. We don't have any chairs anymore, that's fine. And then we started drinking and dancing and John Hargrave took off his shirt and waved it around. Uh, it was incredible. Like He'd be like, what, what on earth happened? Right? 
Now, this is an incredible story of Israel replacing the living God with a, f- a fake God. And we can ask ourselves the question, right, are, we, are we all that much different? No, I don't think we're at that much risk of, burning, of melting all our chairs. I don't think John Hargrave is at much risk of taking off his shirt and waving it around like he just don't care. Right? John definitely might have second thoughts about leaving me in charge again. But I don't think there's that much difference between what Israel does and what we do on the regular. Tim Keller has this to say about idols in his book, Counterfeit God. Every culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. Now we can miss this because we don't have literal statues. We don't fashion things out of stone or wood anymore, but we have idols of the heart. This is what Ezekiel 14 verse 3 says. God brings a charge against the leaders of Israel. He says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their own hearts and have put sinful stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I be consulted by them at all? What happens is that we take good things that God gives us and makes them ultimate things. We replace replace God with his creation. Tim Keller says this again in Counterfeit Gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God, an idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great course, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So this story about a golden calf has great merit for us. Because no, we're not at risk of burning all our gold earrings down to make a golden calf to worship. But we all the same have made golden calves in our hearts. We have replaced the living God for his creation. And there are some helpful ways to determine what they are. You might be sitting here and go, I don't know about that. I don't know whether I've got idols in my heart. I don't know if I've replaced the living God. Well, let me ask you this. I think there are three ways that we can determine and find the idols of our heart. Here's the first one. Where do I spend my time? One of the most confronting questions you can ask yourself is to open up your diary and say, what do I worship? What does my time reveal that I worship? There's a great, great quote, I think we have it on the screen, by Jeff Dyer. He says, your deepest desire is that manifested or shown by your daily life and habits. In the end, everyone does what they want to do. 
Everyone builds their life around what they worship most. And so if you want to find out what you worship, what your idol is, what the golden calf of your heart is, take a look at your calendar and ask yourself, what does this reveal for me? Second way of finding out what, what, what is my idol? Ask the question, what am I most afraid of? What am I most fearful of? What is my nightmare? What is the thing that if I lost would cause me to like, just lose interest in life itself? Because that's the driving force behind your life. That's an idol. The third thing. Go down the screen. What am I willing to do in order to get this? If you are willing to sin in order to get something, you have an idol. You are disobeying the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, in order to get something idle. And one of the most challenging things is that the people of God can spend their entire lives worshipping something other than the God who saved them. We, too, have a problem. So what happens next in the story? We pick it up in verse 30. Moses starts interceding. The following day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a god of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. This is just a beautiful picture of Jesus and intercession. Moses says, God, I need you to forgive these people. I need you to atone for these people. But if you will not, if this sin is so grave, like remove me as well. I'm with these guys. It's this beautiful picture of Moses being like Jesus. And then... We hear God's response. And God's response is what I want to focus on this morning because I think in it we discover what the stages of renewal and revival look like for people who have fallen off the bandwagon with God. What does it look like for a sinful and sleepy people to be woken up and close to God? So let's read from 33, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go up from here. You and the people you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Aborites and the Hethites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, otherwise I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this news, this bad news, they mourned and did not put on their jewelry. God's response, in, in short, is go. Go to Canaan. Go to the land of milk and honey. Go. I will destroy your enemies. I will send an angel with you, but I will not go with you. And the people's response is mourning. It's tearfulness. It's sorrow. The first stage of renewal in the church and in our own hearts is a realization of the position we have before God. 
What happens in this moment is that those who have rebelled against God, those who have come to Aaron and said, make us, a, make us a God. We'll worship this God instead of the living God. Those who have slandered the name of Moses have come to a realization of the sinfulness they have before God. This is a serious situation. What God is threatening is, I am going to remove my presence from you because of the sin you have done. And we, you start to see this. Like in, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Exodus story, there's all these signs and symbols of God's presence being right there with Israel, and they are not there anymore. The cloud is not there anymore that has followed them through the desert. The pillar of fire is not there with them anymore. The presence of God is not with his people. He has removed himself from their presence because of their sinfulness. God will not be compromised in partnership with a sinful people. It does not matter how smart you are, how talented you are, how servant-hearted you are, how often you attend church, how much you read your Bible. God will not be in partnership with sin. He will remove his presence. Now, there is always a mechanic for the renewal of the relationship. God God doesn't just say, well, I'm, I'm leaving it to you. I've removed my presence. There's always a mechanism for renewal. But we need to come to the realization that if we do not relent, if we do not, if we do not repent of our sinfulness, God will not be in relationship with us. If we refuse to relent, if we refuse to say, God, I, I get it, I, I've sinned against you, his presence will not be with us. Even this is a mercy, though. Like what God says to them is, I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people, otherwise I might destroy you on the way. This seems, this seems silly, right? I might destroy it. It sounds like my relationship with bot, like glasses, right? Well, you're there. I might knock you over. I don't know what's going to happen, right? Uh, what? Oh, sorry, Israel, I destroyed you, right? It se- seems ridiculous. What God's saying is this, your spiritual state before me brings you in peril because I'm a holy God and I cannot be around sin. My presence will destroy you. God is holy. And what every single one of us needs is God to bring, before the blessings of renewal and revival come, God needs to break up the hard ground of our hearts in order for us to be replanted. He needs to convict us in order to break up our hard hearts, our sinful hearts that are set against God. Arthur Wallace says it like this. It is time to cease excusing our sins by calling them shortcomings or natural weaknesses or by attributing it to our temperament or our personalities or environment. It is time to cease justifying our sinful ways and materialistic outlooks by pointing to others who are the same or much worse than us. We must face our sins honestly in the light of God's word, view them as he does and deal with them as before him. Until we do, it would be well that God should withhold the reins of revival. So what are your idols? What are your idols? What is God laying on your heart? What is the thing that you're trying not to think about in this moment because you know that God might be calling you to lay it down? 
It is a roadblock to revival in your own heart. I know as I look at my own life, there are idols that I have that must be left behind. I know that uh, I, have, I have a penchant to want people to like me. I think that, that's one of my, my, my main idols. I know that when I'm in conversation with people, that there'll be a little voice in the back of my head that says, say this thing, say this in a certain way, leave this detail out because that means that person will like you more and that's what you really need. So what ends up happening is I shade the truth, what the Bible calls lying, in order to get the approval of others, right? That's idolatry. I've sinned in order to receive something from someone else that I think I need. That's an idol. That needs to go. Now, that might not be yours, but every single one will have an idol here this morning. It needs to die. We move on to verse 5 and 6. For the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onwards. Repentance must follow conviction. That feeling that sits in our guts that says, God, you got me. I know I've sinned against you. I know I have idols of my heart. I know that there's this stuff inside me that keep me from you must be followed by repentance. We must say, God, I'm changing. What often happens is that we get convicted of our sin and we say, we know that's not of the Lord. We know that God has commanded us to live elsewhere. We know that God has commanded us to do something different. And we go, yep, okay, God, you got me. I can see that that's bad. I can see that I've sinned against you. I've felt it. I've felt really sad for a day. And uh, now I'm moving on. That is not repentance. That's remorse. All of us feel remorse from time to time. I feel bad and I'll continue to feel bad until those feelings go away. Repentance demands a life change. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says it like this. Godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. Repentance demands change. It's like this. I once heard a story of... um, a guy praying with his pastor. He would meet with his pastor um, and they would pray once a week and the pastor got to know him pretty well. And the guy would pray these prayers all the time. He'd say, God, remove the cobwebs of my life. We're saying there's this stuff in my life that needs to be removed. Uh, Help me. And there was this one time where the guy was meeting with his pastor and he starts praying this prayer, God, remove the cobwebs from my life. And the pastor interjects. He says, no, Lord. Kill the spider. So many of us feel bad about our sin and we leave the source of it just there lurking for us to return to in times of trouble or when we need affection or encouragement or whatever it is. We need to kill the spider. We need repentance. We need to do something. There's something that needs to be left behind. Because what happens when you read the stories of renewal and revival throughout history and in the Old Testament and the New Testament, something needs to be left behind in every single circumstance. What happens? 
The Israelites are mourned by their sin. They are convicted by their sin and they strip their jewelry and no longer wear it. From Mount Horeb onwards, there is a stripping that must occur in repentance. There is something that must be left behind. We cannot go forward forward with it. The spider must be killed. And what happens so often is we come to church and we confess our sins and we receive the absolution and we just go back to the spider. We need repentance. Kill the spider. Don't let it live in your house anymore. Don't let it make webs in your house anymore. If you know there's something in your heart, this I have against God. Right? This is keeping me from God. Don't just remove the, 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 the effects. Remove the source. Repentance must follow conviction. When we read onwards from verse 7. Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp. At a distance from the camp, he called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand. And they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, that's God's presence, would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up and bow in worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. And then Moses would return to his camp. His assistant, the young man, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. And as Moses was talking, he said to the Lord, Lord, you have told me to lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Consider that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses responds, if your presence does not go with us, don't make us go from here. God has removed his presence from the people of Israel. The presence of the Lord is no longer in the camp. Moses has to make a tent outside the camp. It says far away, at a distance from the camp. Right? He has to go a distance in order to meet with God. The presence has been removed. And it comes to this moment where God is saying, Go. I will give you your heart's desire. I will give you a land for yourself. I will give you a people. I will give you your enemies. I will give you all this stuff. And Moses says, if you will not go with us, we will not leave this place. What Moses comes is to this profound realization that Canaan is of no value at all, that milk and honey are of no value at all, that defeating the enemies are of no value at all if the Lord is not with him. And that's the question we must ask ourselves. What is the value of having a nice house? What is the value of having a nice education? What is the value of having a great family? What is, the, what is the value of being good at sports? What is the value of getting a great ATAR? What is the value of having a great career? What is the value of having all of these things if the presence of the Lord is not with you? 
one of the most haunting psalms commenting on this exact experience of Israel is Psalm 106. It says this. This is from the New King James Version. And he gave them their requests but sent leanness into their souls. He gave them their heart's desire but sent poverty into their soul. He gave them everything they wanted but it wasn't enough because he was not there. There is a way of living in which you can have everything you ever wanted and yet there is going to be a leanness in there because God is not present. And here's here's the confronting truth that we have to come to terms with. Not everyone in this house wants to be renewed by the Lord. Just a fact. There are people who come to church each and every week who, when it comes down to it, what they really want, they want a nice education and they want a nice career in order to buy a nice house, in order to have a nice family, in order to go on nice holidays with their nice friends so that they can finally come to have a nice retirement in which they have a nice death, no prolonged, no hell. And they do not really care if the presence of God is with them. And for the Christian, that is a tragedy. You can have the riches of the earth, and if God is not with you, it is meaningless. The question we must ask ourselves, where is God? How is God in my life? Am I near to God? I'm not... Canaan is of no use to us. Milk and honey is of no use to us if the Lord is with us. We need to say, God, I don't want milk and honey. I don't want my enemies defeated. I don't want this land you've promised. I want you. I want you and you alone. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire but you. That's what needs to be our heart's desire. I'm not asking if you have a good life. I'm not asking if you're happy. I'm not even asking if you come to church and you serve. What I'm asking is, do you know God? How's your relationship with God? Are you close to God? Is is God with you? Is his presence near you? Is your life orientated around him? Or have you moved on? Happy to live off his power and presence. Happy to live off the power and presence of his angels and his leaders, like what he promised Israel, but not himself. The end of repentance, the ultimate aim of repentance, is to lead us to a place where we say, God, all I want is you. Because what we do in repentance, ultimately, is say, God, I have put something else in your place. Lead me back to you. I need you. John Piper says it like this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, Could you be satisfied with heaven if God was not there? Ask yourself that question. Because if we are to experience personal renewal in our hearts, the answer must be a firm no. 
If there is anything inside of you that says yes, that is the Lord leading you to conviction. You have built your life on idols that must be replaced. There is no hope for renewal of the church or of the culture without God's people being renewed by this. Conviction of sin must lead to repentance and repentance must lead to a prioritizing the presence of God above all else. Mark Sayers says it like this in his book, Reappearing Church. The church begins when a disparate and disheveled, a broken and tired group of ordinary people crying out to God are filled with his presence. The handful of renewed people with no army, no political power and no money would turn the world upside down. At every moment the church has been renewed and revived, we discover the same phenomenon. A person or a handful of people have gotten to the ends of themselves. They who cannot tolerate it anymore and fall at the feet of Christ, filled with his presence, and become infectious agents of the kingdom in the world. This is renewal. And so here's the question you must ask yourself. Have you come to the end of yourself yet? Are you tired of yourself? That's the question that we must come to. Are you tired of orientating your life around idols that do not satisfy? Are you tired of being chained and enslaved to sin that you can't leave behind? Are you tired of carrying around the guilt of hidden sin that you have not confessed and have not repented of? Are you tired of living a life in which everyone looks at you and says, everything's going well, but you know deep down there is a leanness, a poverty in your soul that can only be filled with God? If that's where you are this morning, good. Those are good things. There is the spark of renewal and revival in us. But do not let it go out. This is the heart of renewal, conviction of sin, earnest repentance and a prioritization of the presence of God above all other things. God, we want you. So what we're going to do now is I want you to sit in that moment for a bit. Because what we often do at church is that we feel that conviction and then the moment passes and we just move on. I don't want to move on from this moment. I want us to come face to face with the fact that we are in a serious position before God. That if we are sinning relentlessly, he will remove his presence from us. I want to come face to face with the fact that we must repent. That doesn't just mean feeling bad about it. It doesn't just mean feeling sad about it. It means leaving it behind. It means leaving stripped of the ornaments. Right? We must be in a place where we say, God, I want you above all other things. The world could be offered to me. Riches could be offered to me. Everything could be offered to me. But I want you. So what we're going to do is we're going to invite the band up and they're going to play some music. But we're not going to sing. I want you to just have this moment between you and God and ask yourself, where am I at? Am I close to God? Do I, do, do I desire his presence? Am I convicted of sin? Do I need to repent? What do I need to do in this moment, Lord? Because that will start renewal in our hearts.
Let me pray. God, lead us to the end of ourselves. Do not allow us to proceed without your presence. Do not allow us to move on from this moment where you're convicting us of our idols. God, strip us of our idols. Show them to be the shameful, shameful replacement of you. They are weak and powerless. Take them from us. Lead us to you. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, we need you. We need you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.